Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus says, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. If we have Jesus, if he opens our eyes and hearts to take hold of him, the beating heart of reality, if we have Jesus, we will never be in the dark. But that doesn't mean that we'll always be in the know. Jesus doesn't promise us awareness of how every situation and circumstance will play out in our lives. Many of us don't know what tomorrow or the week ahead will hold for us. And even fewer can be certain of the shape of the coming year. Life with the living God is more often than not lived one day, one step at a time. And that's a lesson that the nation of Israel is about to learn. By this point in the Exodus narrative, Egypt has been severely weakened. The nation, according to its own officials, is on the verge of ruin. God has revealed his cosmic power and patient judgment. And when in the ninth plague that Hannah read to us, when darkness falls on the land, when darkness falls that can be felt, It's now clearer than ever to the Israelites that they are better off with the living God than against him. The Israelites themselves are barely mentioned through the plagues and Moses and Aaron are kind of mouthpieces of God. And and this God actually, quite simply, he does whatever he wants. Plague after plague after plague, it is God who is driving the drama forward. But as the Israelites might begin to allow themselves to imagine their coming freedom, they must also wonder, what exactly is driving this God? Like, what are his deepest motivations? Or to use the old-fashioned word, what are his passions? And what will that mean for us? day to day, step by step. The plagues, the plagues reveal God's passion, his zealous, energetic pursuit of three things. The glory of his name, the whole life worship of his people, and the gracious blessing of all nations. And as we see God's deepest motivations revealed, we will be invited, along with the Israelites, to have our own deepest motivations formed and reformed. And ultimately, I think that Jesus is saying to us today, from his word, that the most powerful and rewarding driving force a person can have in life is to pour themselves out for him in worship and service amongst the uncertainties and unknowns of everyday life. And so let's get started. 
As we read this dramatic account of God's action in Egypt, you may have been struck by how much God ends up talking about himself. God is always zealously pursuing the glory of his own name. We read statements like these. By this you will know that I am the Lord. And so on. If anyone, if any of us, spoke about ourselves as much as God does in the plagues, those around us might accuse us of being vain or arrogant. But God is not like us. And what we notice is that God speaks about himself so much because there are counterfeit competitors to God and reality. The real thing is actually good news for us. You see, the pharaohs of Egypt were held to be these kind of semi-divine beings chosen by the Egyptian gods to guide the nation. God's actions in Egypt designed to distinguish him from both the pharaohs and the gods of the pharaohs. Yahweh, the living God, is not another name to add to the list. God reveals what he's like so that his competitors, who claim to be in charge, will be exposed as counterfeit gods. His name is superior. And so God speaking of himself, it's not vanity, it's reality. And think about it, you may have noticed this in others, obviously not yourself, but vain people, vain people always do at least four things. Vain people never admit their faults. Vain people always consider themselves to be superior in every possible way. And vain people always see the world with them at the centre of it. And I think the root of vanity, this kind of arrogance, is that vain people create a fantasy world to live in. See, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, as we've seen, Pharaoh is vain. God is light. And as John tells us, as we've heard, in him there is no darkness at all. Think about this. Only God has no faults to admit to. Only God is effortlessly superior in every every way. Only God. God is the light of life. The Bible tells us he actually is the center of reality. Pharaoh is the one who lives in a fantasy world. It is the living God alone who created this one. The Bible says the heavens, the heavens declare the glory of God. And just for a minute, think about the alternative. If God could somehow remain silent. If God were never to reveal the reality and beauty of his name and the power and grace that is within him. That would be disaster for us. 
the very best thing God can do for us is make himself known in increasing measure. Make known the scale of his superiority over and against all competitors and counterfeits. And God is deeply passionate about that. He zealously, energetically pursues the glory that he alone deserves. Now, um, a few years ago, a friend of mine was telling me about um, the gymnastics club that their toddlers had joined. Their, their kids were quite young, and so they'd kind of go for an hour to this, this big gymnastics kind of arena. Uh, and they'd go in and they'd have fun kind of rolling around, bouncing on the gymnastics equipment. But one of the coaches at this club was an ex-professional gymnast and he'd competed in the Olympics and from time to time the kids and even the parents would like chant and cheer until this gymnast, this coach, would show them what he could do. And he'd effortlessly somersault and flip and handspring and leap and twist and backward cartwheel across the gym without even breaking sweat. And the kids and parents would be wide-eyed in amazement. And the smartest four-year-olds in the group would say something like this, if what we've been doing is gymnastics, <laughs> there really ought to be another name for what that was. <laughs> You see, in, in the presence of genuine excellence, it's not actually the superiority that's staggering. It's the scale of superiority. That Olympian and those toddlers weren't even in the same category. And in a world of counterfeits and competitors, the best thing God can do is talk about himself. Have you think about what he can do and have your life orbit his. And as he does, he doesn't just reveal his superiority. He's no small God. He reveals the staggering scale of that superiority. In every possible sense, he is in a class of his own. And it gives him joy. It gives him joy to express that to us. And so for us today, one significant implication of this is how we handle the scriptures. This book we have in front of us that we read from today. The Bible is God's divine self-revelation to us. God speaking with authority of himself. And many of us will be very familiar with the Bible, but others, others just won't. You see, it's not just a collection of human stories, though it is full of rich literature. The greatest aim of the Bible is not actually for us to have extensive Bible knowledge, though that is a good thing. 
the most profound thing about the Bible isn't even that it will make us more wise as we read it, though that will happen. The most profound thing, and hear this, about the Bible and its greatest aim is your wide-eyed amazement, your encounter with the living God who is light, that we might grasp the scale of his superiority, that we might rightly like revere and praise and adore and treasure and fear and separate out and hallowed be his name. God is always revealing the glory of his name. He's toppling pretenders, counterfeits, and competitors, especially through his self-revealing word. And so let's just get practical for one moment. I think that we all realize that the Bible can be quite daunting, (laughs) daunting to engage with it regularly. And for many of us, who started their Read a Bible in the Year in January, we're already feeling a sense of frustration and maybe even guilt. But we're not without help. The longest psalm, and this is quite ironic really, the longest psalm in the Bible is a celebration of God's word. And partway through it, the psalmist writes this prayer. Turn my heart. Turn my heart, God, toward your statutes, meaning God's written word, and not toward selfish gain. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. Preserve my life according to your word. And I I think this is important for us as a prayer. You see, God is so passionate about you and I understanding him as he really is and understanding reality as it truly is that he tells us to ask him for help. I hope you see that. This, it's not just help understanding the Bible either. Though God is good enough to do that for us, it's far more like relational than that. It's more like, dear God, help me love and enjoy getting to know you more. Help me to never end up pouring out my life for paper-thin, counterfeit glory. Give me the real thing, God. And you know, because the best thing that God can do is talk about himself, This is the kind of prayer that God is eager, eager to answer. And that's why we pray before we hear God's word together. Show us your glory, God. Especially as we sit quietly waiting for exactly that. With your Bibles open in front of you, whether it's here on a Sunday, whether it's a life group during the week, or in the middle of a restless night. Perhaps when we know we need it more than ever. God, show us your glory. Now, second point. 
just as consistent as God speaking about his um, name in the plagues is God speaking of his ultimate desire for his people. In fact, the two are intimately connected. God is always zealously pursuing the whole life worship of his people so that they may worship me is the phrase that echoes through every single plague. And there are a couple of clues that we notice along the way that let us know, um, they let us in on the nature of that worship. The first clue comes in the fourth plague, the plague of flies. Moses says, the sacrifices we offer the Lord our God would be detestable to the Egyptians. And if we offer sacrifices that are detestable in their eyes, will they not stone us? And whatever the specific practices Moses is referring to here, we can't really be certain. But what is clear is that the worship of the living God was to be distinctive from the cultural religious practices of the Egyptians. That's the first clue. And the second clue that we get is in the ninth plague, the plague that we had read to us. Again, Pharaoh tries to negotiate with God's demands through Moses, but Moses refuses. And he says this, our livestock too must go with us. Not a hoof, not a hoof is to be left behind. Let me skip ahead. Until we get there, we will not know what we are to use to worship the Lord. And I think this is actually really important for us to get our heads around. The worship that Moses and the Israelites are anticipating is not an edited Egyptian worship, but it also doesn't appear to be a form of worship that was conceived in the mind of Moses. Moses doesn't know which animals the Lord will require. In other words, the living God will himself reveal and establish the pattern of the nation's life and worship. God himself is eager. He's on the edge of his seat, yearning to form this distinctive people centered around him. He's zealous to realize his claim over his people's lives. You see, Pharaoh thinks that the worship of Yahweh is a simple doing thing. When in reality, the worship God has in mind is a becoming. A becoming that leads to a doing. God consistently works in this order, actually. The Bible describing the church says this. And this is the New Testament. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You are so that you may. You have been made something that you may do something. 
delivered from darkness to enjoy the bright glory of his name. In the plagues we witness God's deep desire for a distinctive people who actually love him. Just think about those first commandments. We'll get to them in our Exodus series. You are called out of slavery that you might walk freely in the light. And this is always the way for God's people. And so for us, here I think is an implication. I think it does make a lot of sense. You see, a God of this scale will never be satisfied with a couple of hours of contact on a Sunday afternoon each week. He's too big for that. He wants your entire life. Your thinking, your feeling, your learning, your working, your resting, your playing, your growing, and your dying. All of it in the light with him. In other words, God's deliverance will transform his people's economic, religious, political, social reality. The way God delivers us has as much to say about our lives on earth as it does to say about our lives in heaven. And when we begin to follow the logic of this superior God, it means that God's rescued people become a a culture. A culture within a culture. A distinctive culture of light. Taking its lead from its genuine communion with the living God. Think about Jesus when he's instructing his disciples. You may know these words. He says, you, talking to his disciples, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your father in heaven now i wonder how you feel about that a distinctively good people a people who because they've become something go on to do something a people get this who make god look good you you see God God has interlocked his reputation with ours I wonder if you see how stunning that is God has chosen to glorify himself through our deliverance and through our whole life worship you are now that you may god says to the israelites that they'll need everything that they've got not a hoof is to be left behind and he's zealous 
about that. God makes a claim over our use of power and our money, our bodies and what we do with them, our careers and how we raise our children, our time and how we regain our energy. Don't leave a hoof. It's all his. And now let me point out three, three things quickly to, to round this off that might have occurred to you. The first thing is, and I, I'm sorry if this um, catches you off guard, Christianity and its whole life worship is weird. It just is. We live at a time when our world is quickly becoming suspicious of Christian values. And so, of course, we at times appear weird. And some of our choices at times may well seem detestable. And even outside of our particular cultural moment, human beings are naturally self-serving. And so, of course, you, Christian, at times won't fit in. You see, you are living sacrifices set apart in service to God, distinctive and pleasing to God. The living God is the one who zealously directs our whole life worship of him. What has happened to you and how you are responding to it has not been conceived in a human mind. And so, of course, of course, if you are all in with Jesus, you will turn human wisdom on its head. But this is not human wisdom. This is the real thing. Second thing. The living God chooses the most surprising people. And now I know that some of you will be thinking, oh, Elliot, that sounds all, yeah, great, wonderful, yeah, whatever. Um, but my life, my life, if you were to see the details of my life, I'm far too insignificant, too far gone, too messy to make God look good. Well, think about this just for a moment. If God chose to start with a family of downtrodden slaves led by an 80-year-old murderer, 80-year-old <laughs> murderer, who amongst us, who amongst us, when we hand our whole lives over to him, can't he use to glorify himself. A God of this scale can do what he wants. He loves surprising people by using surprising people. I think God really enjoys demonstrating that kind of scale of his superiority by doing extraordinary things with ordinary folk liberating naturally self-centered people 
like me and you, to supernaturally self-forgetful service. So whoever you are, he's not done with you. And finally, the final implication before I move on. God's passion, an implication of God's passion for his people is that anyone can pray. He makes that possible. Every Christian has the living God's ear. John Calvin, the great reformer, wrote that that prayer is the chief exercise of faith. Oh, and don't we need to pray? The spirit of the living God inspired the Apostle Paul to end his letter to the church in Ephesus by writing this. Pray. Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. And so just imagine how we as a church might shine if each one of us committed to praying that God would give us open eyes to the needs around us and a tender, loving, sympathetic heart ready to bring all we have into the light, into his service, for his glory. You see, God is passionate about having a living, breathing community inspired by the scale of his superiority, a people enamored by his glory and goodness who actually, because of what has happened to them, who actually love him. And want their whole lives to prove it. You are free that you may worship. And finally, the third thing that God is always zealously pursuing in the world and our lives is the gracious blessing of all nations. God is driving this drama forward, demonstrating his passion for his name and his people. And there at first appear to be only two audiences to what's going on here. Pharaoh and his officials, of course, and less frequently, but just as significantly, the Israelites themselves. But there does appear, there does appear, if we read it carefully, to be a third audience that God has in mind that will be enlightened by these events. And Exodus 9 verse 16 says that my name, God is doing all of this, that my name might be proclaimed in Israel? No. In Egypt? No. In all of the earth. And much later in Israel's story, God through the prophet Ezekiel, he explains the big picture of what he was doing through the plagues. And let me read this to you. But for the sake of my name, I brought them out of Egypt. He's talking about bringing the Israelites out of Egypt. I did it to keep my name from being profaned in the eyes of the nation. Part of what God is doing with the Israelites is protecting his reputation around the globe. 
You see, God has a wider audience in mind. God knows that the world is watching. In fact, it is worth recalling the scale of the promises that set all of this in motion. You see, before Israel was a nation, it was a family. And before it was a family, it was an unlikely man named Abraham. And he had nothing but a promise from the living God. And this is what we read in Genesis 12. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And I, I, I so want to highlight this for us today because in rescuing and forming a distinctive people in the Exodus, he was actually enacting a deep and foundational desire to bless all people and fill the whole earth with his glory. God has always been and always will be zealously pursuing the redemption of the entire earth and every nation. You see, the sweep of God's history told in the Bible points us ahead to a final reality. When the earth is remade and all God's passion comes to fruition with a multinational, multi-ethnic, multicultural celebration feast of God's grace. All kinds of groups are represented in that final reality. God is a gracious, promise-making God who blesses nations and people who have absolutely no right to expect it. And that couldn't be clearer than in the story of Egypt. Egypt, this oppressive nation. And as we're seeing, God weakens Egypt to the point of catastrophe. The nation survives, but power in the region begins to shift significantly. And by the reign of Solomon in Egypt, 500 years after the Exodus, Egypt and a now much strengthened Israel broker a power-sharing alliance as a way of resisting another growing empire, the Assyrian Empire. And none of this is absent of God's activity. In fact, God continues to drive the action forward. And, and hear this, around 700 years before Jesus, the prophet Isaiah delivers what must be, I think, one of the most stunning biblical prophecy, prophecy of God's blessing of a nation outside of Israel. Now, when I read this, Years ago, I read it and I thought, wait a minute, I've got a misprint in my Bible. <laughs> this is what God says. 
the Lord will strike Egypt with a plague. And now, again, this is long after the Exodus, but this language still held power in the Egyptian consciousness. But God sees a different ending this time. He will strike them and heal them. They will turn to the Lord and he will respond to their pleas and heal them. In that day, Israel will be a third along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on the earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them saying, blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork and Israel, my inheritance? I thought it was a misprint. It must be. This Egypt? You see, God graciously promises that Israel, or like Israel, Egypt will be blessed by God. Now, these promises are as much about recalibrating Israel's view of God as they are about Egypt. Now, this prophecy is yet to be completed in full, but it is worth mentioning now the history and growing presence of Christianity in Egypt. You see, when Jesus commissioned his followers to go and make disciples of all nations, it's understood that the Apostle Mark, traveled to Egypt to spread the good news of Jesus. In fact, Alexandria, a port city in the north of Egypt, was one of a handful of key Christian centers of the early church. And some of you will know that largely down to Egyptian believers, Athanasius, an Egyptian believer, the church clarified, strengthened its belief in the Trinity, And so in one sense, we worship Father, Spirit, and Son because Egyptians did before us. Even now, the largest church in the Middle East and North Africa is a church in a once poverty-stricken, Zabalayan community on the outskirts of Cairo, carved into a cave. God has blessed and is blessing Egypt. And that's a pattern that's repeated hundreds of times in nations around the globe. And just think about that for a minute. If Egypt and Egyptians are not off limits to the gracious blessing of God, then there is surely no nation, no people group, no human heart outside of God's desire to bless. And if God is passionate about blessing all nations, then how about our nation and our neighbourhoods? How about Rotherham and South Yorkshire? And how about the ends of the earth through us? Is that something we want? Something we want to be part of? Let me just press this a little further. You see, God has, God has a special regard for the foreigner. It's all over the Old Testament. Often included alongside the orphan, the widow, are the displaced, the alien, the refugee. 
And I know many of you know this, and I know many of you believe it, and I know many of you live this out. And I'm so, I'm always encouraged to hear how members of our church who are going through incredibly difficult times away from home are being supported and blessed by others. That is a special care. But I I do want to say that the scale of the superiority of our God and our status as a distinctive community of life means that we are also invited by him to critique and challenge and raise our voices in opposition to the dark practices and unjust systems religious, economic, social, political, or otherwise, practices that make a special care of this kind necessary in the first place. And so, church, let's continue to respond to God's invitation to be the kind of blessing that meets the need through special care. But might we also be the kind of blessing that works to eradicate the need through seeking justice. The living God has as much to say about life on earth as he does about life in heaven. And the state of our world today, the wars, poverty, persecution, means that here in Rotherham, the nations are on our doorstep. And those who have been displaced and then displaced again and again, they need all the gracious blessing God has to give. And we praise God that behind the plagues and behind the entirety of human history is a God who is passionate about his glory, passionate about his people, and, and passionate about the blessing of all nations, all people. And so let me bring us to a close. I am the light of the world. Aware, aware of many of your situations this week, I've been, I've been praying, I've been asking God to show me the good news significance of his passion seen in the plagues. And my heart keeps returning to Moses facing Pharaoh for the final time. The people of God on the edge of the unknown. He simply does not know what tomorrow will hold. Living with just enough light for one day, one more step. And as I've thought on it, I've been reminded of another leader of God's people in a similar moment. Simon Peter, like Moses, was chosen by God to lead his people. 
And though Simon Peter never stands before a Pharaoh, he does encounter the risen Lord Jesus Christ, the superior king. And some of you will remember that Simon Peter had failed Jesus miserably. Right when it mattered most. But Jesus, he goes looking for him. He finds Simon Peter on a beach one morning. And Simon Peter's world is upside down. The people of God, who he's supposed to be leading, are on the edge of the unknown. He simply does not know what tomorrow will hold for him. And many of us know that feeling. Many of you are, even today, facing significant, significant uncertainties. But actually all of us, all of us understand the experience of the fear of an uncertain future. And Jesus... Jesus invites Simon Peter's response to one simple question. You see, Jesus Christ is no Pharaoh. Jesus is the exact representation and radiance of the glory of God. He is the humble head of God's distinctive beloved people. It was in and through the sinless life the sin-bearing death and death-defeating resurrection of Jesus that God made his blessing to all nations and all peoples possible. And together with the Father, Jesus sends the Spirit and the church into the world as witnesses to his kingdom. He is the superior king. He's the light of the world. And he invites Simon Peter to respond to a single the single most profound question that any of us will ever answer. Do you remember? Do you remember what Jesus asked him? The question Jesus asked him was this. Simon Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Christianity can be summarized with those words in the mouth of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says to Simon Peter, and I think to us, do you love me? Have you glimpsed enough of his glory to throw yourself into his care? Have you tasted and seen that he is good? He can forgive your failures. He can purify you from all sin. He can deliver you from your oppression. He can overcome his enemy and he has. He can deal with your lack. Has the scale, the scale of his superiority become a comfort to you do you love him are you all in do you love him 
You see, if we love Jesus, if we've said yes to him and we go all in with him, he will not turn us away. Sinful as we are, he has given us himself. The only king who deserves the love, worship and service he demands from us. Our living, risen, present, redeemer, king, the real thing, the eternal almighty God of glory. Our light in the darkness. So brothers and sisters, if you have Jesus, you lack nothing. Whatever you're facing, whatever uncertainties your tomorrow may hold, whatever unknown you stand on the edge of today, if you have Jesus and no other data, you know all you need to know. You have everything you need to have. If you have Jesus and only darkness, even darkness that can be felt. If you have Jesus, you will always have enough light for the next day. Enough light for the next step. Though your path, though your path may be unclear and your concerns are real, he loves you with all the passion in heaven. He loves you. Let me pray for us. Oh, faithful, living, glorious God of light. We love you. We do. We're sorry that we, we so often underplay the scale of your superiority. We're sorry we often live in your world as if you're small, you're as if you're needy and chaotic like we are. Father of the heavenly lights, inspire us to more faithful, more distinctive, more active, more whole life love and service of you. And even when we face significant unknowns and our future isn't clear, help us by the power of your spirit to have the eyes of our hearts opened and enlightened to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ who loves us to death and through to the other side. Oh, thank you for our Redeemer. Thank you that we have him and he has us. Father, bless the nations. We want to be used by you more and more. Bless the nations through us. 
And we pray, because of, united to, and in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Redeemer King. Amen.